Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Guy R. McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Arizona, is our guest in this, the second of a two-part series about abrupt climate change. In part one, podcasted at radiocurious.org, we consider the existing circumstances likely to bring about abrupt climate change. In particular, the total melt of the polar ice caps. This melt would result in the polar seawater absorbing heat from the sun rather than reflecting it, raising ocean temperatures worldwide and shutting off our planetary air conditioner. These consequences could make Mother Earth grossly inhabitable to human habitation and potentially shut down our ability to grow grain and other crops we depend on for food. Without food readily available, well, I'll leave that to your imagination. Here, in part two of our conversation with Professor McPherson, we further discuss this pending potential catastrophe and how we may each personally be able to relate to it. Guy McPherson and I visited by phone on August 12, 2018, and began with his comments of what would occur after the global temperatures preclude the ability to grow grains, the other foods upon which we rely, and the resulting reduction of industrial activity. Finally, in this visit, we discuss how, in the wake of grimness, joy may be created, along with other options. Guy McPherson, tell us about some of the other catastrophes that could occur with abrupt climate change. With as little as 35% reduction in industrial activity, so basically that's the uh, approximately the European economy or the United States economy or the Chinese economy, those are in that neighborhood of about 35% plus or minus, you know, five or eight percent. So, with a reduction in that level of industrial activity, the sulfates that are produced by through burning fossil fuels will continue to fall out of the sky, but we won't be adding them back up into the sky. So, what that means is the temperature will heat up catastrophically, with as little as 35% decrease in Industrial activity, we can expect a one degree global average temperature rise. That's one degree Celsius or nearly two degrees Fahrenheit. That's paradoxical because we think of civilization as a heat engine. And in fact, there's a bunch of evidence to support the idea that no matter how we power civilization, it is a heat engine based on the laws of thermodynamics. So we think, well, if we just turn off the heat engine or at least slow it down, then we'll produce less heat. But because of global dimming or the aerosol masking effect, once we slow down or terminate civilization, the planet heats up even faster than it was going before because those aerosols, sulfates mostly, fall out of the sky and, and stop acting as an umbrella to keep sunlight from coming in and entering the atmosphere to begin with. So it's, it's really a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where we keep burning fossil fuels and that overheats the planet. But if we stop burning fossil fuels, that heats the planet even faster. What then? And isn't it also heated faster by the methane? Absolutely. Much, much faster by a little bit of methane. And those two are related. The sulfate reduction uh, uh, exacerbates the methane increase? Yes, absolutely. Can you explain that science? 
Yeah, and, and there's one more thing to consider as well. We heat up the planet that evaporates more water. Almost all that water in the atmosphere ends up in the upper troposphere. The upper troposphere then heats up the planet even faster because water vapor is a greenhouse gas. It's the most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, more than 90% by volume. So we warm up the planet. That causes water to end up, water vapor to end up in the upper troposphere that warms up the planet even more. Along the way, we start triggering more methane production. More methane escapes into the atmosphere, whether it's through animal agriculture or melting of the permafrost, terrestrial permafrost, or release of those hydrates we talked about earlier from the Arctic Ocean. So there's a bunch of sources of methane that causes heating to occur even faster, which of course melts the permafrost and heats up the ocean so that the hydrates are released even faster. So these are classic self-reinforcing feedback loops, and they're all related to each other. So the more methane you have, the more water vapor ends up in the upper troposphere. The more water vapor ends up in the upper troposphere, the faster the heating occurs on planet Earth. That's a relationship that equilibrizes, equilibrates within a matter of days the global average temperature and the moisture content in the upper troposphere. So all of these things are related. The faster we go, the faster we're heating up the planet, and every one of the self-reinforcing feedback loops from permafrost to uh, oceanic methane in the form of hydrates or clathrates, water vapor, it, it all feeds in, it all heats up the planet, it all humidifies the planet, and it all points in the same bad direction. And it appears there's no turning this thing off or even slowing it down at this point. Where is the upper troposphere in relationship to what the average person can see? It's at the upper end of where commercial air traffic lies. So that's the lower end of the upper troposphere. So I believe it's around 25,000 to 40,000 feet. But a quick online search would tell all the curious listeners the precise answer to that question. In any event, it's, it's where most of the moisture ends up, and it's within sight. So it, almost invariably, if you see contrails from an airplane flying over, it's in the upper troposphere. It's not, it's not that far. It's not at the edge of space or anything like that. And for some people who may not know what contrails are, can you please define? Yeah, that's the water vapor that you see in the form of of jet trails. So the the white looks like a cloud or a smoke that's coming out of the rear end of the aircraft as it flies over. That's condensation trails in the wake of the airplane. Are there places on Earth that would be less susceptible to the circumstances that you have described uh, in this program and in our previous interview you know, I used to think that places like the far south, near Antarctica, would be the best places to be. So places like the South Island of New Zealand and Tasmania, the southern island state of Australia, and extreme southern tip of South America and South Africa and so on. But that was before we came to understand the radical effect of global dimming. Now, because we understand that in a matter of a few weeks, after some of the aerosols fall out of the sky, the global average temperature increases quite significantly. Now that we understand that relationship, 
I don't think there are any bolt holes, no, no places to build your bunker. And I was the bunker guy, bear in mind that I left active service at the University of Arizona at the age of 49 to go grow my garden, to produce a big orchard and learn how to live off the land and live off the grid. And so I was in a position that I should have been and arguably still should be promoting the idea of disconnecting yourself from the system with the idea that it's going to extend your life for quite a long time. But because now we know about global dimming and because we know about those self-reinforcing feedback loops, I don't see that as a way out anymore. So I don't think there's any place that will give somebody appreciably longer. Uh, You know, there, there are probably places that will give somebody weeks or months longer than they would otherwise persist. For example, I don't think when the House of Cards known as civilization comes down that someplace like Los Angeles or New York City, Manhattan are going to be fun places to be because the water will stop coming through the taps and dehydration will become a real problem. People might act a little untoward with each other. And so given my choice, I would rather live in the countryside away from where I think people are going to be confused and might become violent as a result. But so then in a few days or a few weeks, but then again, all those solar all those aerosols are going to fall out of the sky in a short period of time, warm the planet up so much that no organism or effectively no organism is going to be able to keep up. Those, those, Corn plants that you were growing, they're all going to die when it gets up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit and photosynthesis stops. And same applies for all the other things in the garden that have this relationship with the mycorrhizae in the soil and so on. And so I don't think, I don't think we're talking about years. I think we maybe are talking about days, weeks, maybe even a few months difference between Manhattan and, say, the South Island of New Zealand. So what that information does for me is encourages me further to do what I love to do, to further pursue love in what I do, and and to further pursue excellence in what I do. Because if we don't have long, if none of us have long, if for all practical purposes we're all going together from a geological perspective, does it really matter if we all blink out in a span of six weeks or six years or or six decades. That's, that's really, really small potatoes that we're talking about here. We're visiting with Guy R. McPherson, a professor emeritus of natural resources, ecology, and evolutionary biology from the University of Arizona. We're discussing abrupt climate change. What is the science behind it? Where are we on the continuum of our Earth getting hotter? And what is likely to occur? I encourage you to listen to part one of this conversation, which you may find at radiocurious.org. You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Professor Guy McPherson, using all of your knowledge and experience, why is it that the average people don't talk about this, uh, that the governments don't talk about this, et cetera. 
Well, I think there's a good reason for governments and corporations to not talk about the death of individuals and certainly not about the extinction of our species or even the collapse of, of our society, of the settler living arrangements. That would interfere with money and the, the trading of money, the trading of goods and services, which maintain the privilege for a few people on the planet. So I think there are perfectly valid reasons for, you know, round up Monsanto to not warn people that this set of living arrangements is going to go away and then that we will all die as a consequence of that. Because there's no money in that. There's no money in extinction, that's for sure. Guy McPherson, are you then implying that the government is ignoring its obligation uh, to public health and safety? Absolutely. I think there's no doubt about it. I think essentially every climate scientist in the world knows what I know, know and won't talk about it to maintain their own privilege. And certainly the governments of the world know what I know. My, you know, my work is in the public domain. It is freely available. And for, for people to not be talking about this tremendous existential threat, I think is absolutely immoral. It's unethical. And I don't see that changing at any point in the future. I mean, we can barely have a conversation about death, about an individual death in this society, because it's one of those taboos, one of those things that we just don't talk about is when your father, or grandfather, or your cousin is going to die, even if they're on a deathbed. So I don't expect any time soon that governments and corporations are going to turn around and start encouraging people to have that kind of conversation and then ratchet it up a notch and talk about the failure of the settling arrangements and consequently the loss of habitat for our species on the planet. I just don't see that ever happen. I would just add from my personal professional experience uh, doing estate planning for decades, uh, many, many people would not want to uh, have a health care power of attorney identifying how they would like to be treated in their final days, and they just don't want to talk about it. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we all know, we all admit that we're all going to die. But, but none of us now. Right, exactly. Everybody else is going to go first. So then how has the paradigm shifted to get uh, the elected uh, state legislators and uh, members of Congress to confront these issues? I don't think that's going to be possible. I have worked throughout my scientific career going back now some 20, more, more than 25 years to try to get the results of my work incorporated into government policy. And I have been a profound failure at every step along the way. And I think that's, I think that's because there are certain facts certain bits of evidence that corporations and governments do not want us to know. There's no money in extinction. There's no money in, there's a little bit of money in individual death, but certainly not in mass death. There are things that we just don't talk about that are taboo in this society. And I think they have a lot to do with the culture as well as the monetary system, and maybe those are one and the same now, the culture and the monetary system. So 
We don't talk about death or dying or grief or grieving or sex or bodily functions. These are the things that are just absolutely taboo. Why and how do we change that? I don't think it's, I think it's too late to change them at any significant level for uh, any number of people that might actually make a difference. So I think what we're dealing with here is changing the way individuals act one person at a time and improving the quality of life one person at a time. So for the for the few thousand people who listen to this and then maybe spread the message to other people, I think that's what we're left with. And I know that uh, you and uh, your co-author Carolyn Baker in your book Near-Term Extinction that was published in 2015 uh, discussed these issues, how to deal with it on a personal basis. But I'd, I'd like to invite you to review some of those now. Yeah, you know... <laughs> It's noteworthy that that book, which is called Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, um, the publisher went bankrupt. So I think that's a metaphor for the whole conversation. When you try to have this conversation, there's it's, it's a difficult one to have, let's put it that way. And obviously that publisher, Tay and Lane, had a bunch of other books they were publishing and had published as well. So it wasn't this one book that caused their demise, but it didn't exactly become an overnight bestseller. How do we deal with it as individuals, as societies, as families, as groups of people around the water cooler? I think we start by having an honest conversation. I think we start with an honest conversation with ourselves first and and giving it some thought. How do I want to live? I know that my days are numbered. Even if I live to be 100, if I live to be another 42 years beyond where I am today, and I think that's absolutely inconceivable for a a thousand different reasons, near-term human extinction among them. Even if I live to be 100, I strongly suspect that among my final thoughts when I die is going to be, it seemed rather short. I, I don't think that anybody exits the physical realm on planet Earth and says, oh, I had a good run. That was more than enough for me. I've had enough of this now. So what that tells me is that we ought to be living with urgency and living with gratitude. And for me, the integration of my scientific work into my personal life has made me appreciate every moment that much more. So I hang on to those sweet moments with nature, with my partner, with individual human beings in conversation way more than I used to do. I used to be rushing to get out of them so I could go get some more work done. Now I hang on to them a little bit longer and and try to make the memory persist. And I look for those opportunities. I look for opportunities to express my decency as a human being, my respect for other human beings. And and I think without without fully grasping my own message, I wouldn't have that opportunity. Where do you find those opportunities to live with urgency? I live in western Belize now on a 57-acre homestead in the jungle. And I'm in the United States now, and I was staying in a hotel a couple of nights ago. And in the foggy recesses of my 3 o'clock in the morning brain, I could have swore I heard a howler monkey because I hear Howler the Monkeys every night in Belize. And I thought, wow, there's a Howler monkey. And then I, I became more fully awake, and I realized I was in a hotel in 
Minneapolis, and that probably wasn't a howler monkey. And it occurred to me that I really, really like howler monkeys. I really like waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning, since I'm going to do it anyway, and hearing the howler monkeys in the distance. And sometimes the howler monkeys are overwhelmed by the cicadas or the chakalaka birds that are also out making a bunch of racket in the middle of the night. And those, those moments I hold on to now. They used to be an annoyance. Anything that woke me up in the middle of the night was an annoyance. Now I just realize it's an, it's an amazing time to be alive. It's amazing to be alive. And it's an amazing time to be alive and able to appreciate, to listen closely to the sound that was recorded and turned into the T-Rex in Jurassic Park, the original movie. That's the howler monkey and the chocolates and the cicadas and everything else. And so I, I, I live with so much gratitude, so much more gratitude than I used to when I was constantly in a hurry to get things done. And now I'm constantly living urgently and trying to appreciate the, the moments that I'm having instead of rushing through them to get that next paper written. And so it's a, it's a daily, it's a many times daily, it's a many times per hour kind of experience that I'm having now that is very different than the kinds of experiences I had before I began living with urgency, before I began living thinking that any moment might be my last. It's everything. It sounds like nothing, but it's everything. And living with gratitude sounds like you're not following into, or maybe you are, a spiritual level of some religious doctrines of current times and times past. Uh, How do you respond to that? As a scientist, for essentially my entire adult life, I have, when I've been practicing my science, I've been agnostic, recognizing that there are some questions science, through the accumulation of evidence, cannot answer. And in my personal life, I've gone a step beyond that, and I have avoided following any religious or spiritually religious path. That, so as, as a minor example, I'm significantly influenced by the philosophy of Buddhism, but not by the religion of Buddhism. I don't believe there's any evidence to support the idea of reincarnation. I certainly don't remember any of my past lives. But the philosophy of Buddhism, including the, the fourfold way, and the, I mean the eightfold way and the four noble truths, and letting go while also living with urgency, all that applies to me now. I just don't go that next step further into what I would consider the spiritually religious realm and adhere to Buddhism as religious practice. So I don't... I, I've been called spiritual, and maybe I even am, although as a scientist, uh, I, I try to avoid such labels. And instead, I, I seek philosophies that some might consider spiritual, whatever, that allow me to live in a certain way and be comfortable with the path I'm taking in life so that when I look back, I don't have a lot of regrets. When I look back... When I'm taking my final breath, I, I don't wish there are things that I would have done. And to indicate the broad nature of the inputs into my philosophical life, it's not just Buddhism. It's an advertisement for a tourism company that's on the wall of the Belize City Airport. 
And the tagline is, in bold letters, there are seven days in the week, and someday is not one of them. I'm trying not to have those some days, those things I was always going to do someday. I'm trying to do those things, recognizing that my time is short, that actually any day might be my last. Considering the whole of what we've discussed in these past two programs, from your perspective, how does suicide fit in either for yourself or as a topic of general conversation? I think it's wonderful for people to have the conversation. I think it's wonderful for people to contemplate and study and think about and ponder when life becomes too uncomfortable for them to carry on. I would hope people would be thoughtful. I would hope that people would not have a bad day and commit suicide. I would hope that people would spend hours, days, weeks thinking about their own demise, acknowledging when the conditions become too painful, when life becomes too difficult to carry on, and then take action as an individual and to be thoughtful about it. So I don't have a lot of family connections in my life, and I don't have a large circle of friends, but I am. if I commit suicide, and I'm, I'm agnostic about committing suicide, by the way, I think that some people have given a lot of thought and have committed suicide, and that it is actually a, a proper and appropriate step for them to take, and I'm not judgmental about it at all. If I decide to take suicide, I, I plan, I intend to make the process the least painful way for my family and friends. So, for example, I would never shoot myself in the head with a pistol because that, that's a really disgusting, filthy way to die, and somebody's got to clean up that mess. You know, there's a short essay on top of my blog, GuyMcPherson.com, that is all about suicide, and it follows the path of an individual who committed suicide on his 60th birthday. And I would encourage everybody to read that very long essay. Take the couple or three days it takes to read it, and think about it. And think about when your life, when you, when you stop experiencing the daily gratitudes that come with this most amazing life, and recognize that life is no longer worth living for you, and then think about that for a long time. Think about what you leave behind and who you leave behind before you do something as terminal as taking your own life. Professor Emeritus Guy McPherson, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure as always. Guy R. McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Arizona, has been our guest on this, the second of a two-part series on abrupt climate change. You may hear these programs podcasted at radiocurious.org. The reading that Guy McPherson recommends is My Life and Death, an essay by Martin Manley, M-A-N-L-E-Y. Manley's essay discusses his suicide and the reasons for it. It may be found at martin-manley.eprci.com 
or at the bottom of Guy McPherson's website, GuyMcPherson.com, and at RadioCurious.org, where you'll find additional articles on abrupt climate change. This program was recorded on August 12, 2018. There are over 750 archives on our website, RadioCurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.